this morning on how they arrived at the tomb. The two angels were sitting right there at the entrance to ask such a simple yet profound question. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? And that reminds us that our Savior wasn't to be found in a tomb because he is alive. It's not just a past tense story, but that's a present reality that we are all living witnesses of today. And I'm thankful to be in the house of the Lord to celebrate and share in that with you this morning. Let's stand together. We're going to open up the book of Hebrews again. As we turn to Hebrews chapter 12, just a quick announcement. I want to encourage anyone here who has beheld the beautiful lilies up front here just to let you know that they need a home after service. So don't, you know, all rush at once. Let's be polite and kind. No one gets trampled, but these lilies could use a home. They smell wonderful up here, by the way. Hebrews chapter 12. It's going to be reading verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's, be, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather today to celebrate such a momentous occasion. The Son lives. He is risen. We bless you today. And we all share in the resurrection, those of us who have trusted in Christ. Pray that you'd open our ears, open our eyes to what your word has to say to us. That you would give us that much more reason to respond with praises to this living hope that we continue to walk in today. I pray, God, that you'd hide me behind the cross this morning, that Jesus would get all the glory. He is high and lifted up. The Spirit of God would preach this text and that we'd share in the treasures of your wisdom and your glory together. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, just to ease your minds, I, I won't be long today, and some of you may be rolling your eyes and saying, Yeah, right. Um, but I wanted to start off with a, with a confession. Um, for, for many of you, hearing me say I have something to confess may invite a little tension because, you know, maybe I've been known to say a few controversial things up here before, but let me ease your minds, hopefully, depending on where you land here. Today is Easter Sunday, and no matter all of the planning that goes into this Sunday morning and looking at those scriptures and thinking of our study through Hebrews, I want to confess to you today that I had all intention to preach on the resurrection this morning. Not necessarily thinking of it as this broad perspective of approaching the Word of God and saying, oh, there's so many things we can talk about within these two verses, but 
I have to admit to you that my intention was to extract from this text something to share with you in light of the resurrection. Now, you could say that that's my idea, that I'm bringing my ideas to the text, that this date on the calendar doesn't necessarily determine why or when we should visit a certain topic or concept in Scripture. But I'm thankful this morning because whatever my plans were, whatever my intentions or motivations were, the resurrection was screaming from this text before I decided to preach on it. There's so much reason to visit, not only in this text, but throughout the New Testament, the resurrection, by which we have hope. The Gospels come alive to us because the resurrection is true. The epistles, the Acts of the Apostles, is something that screams from the text already, regardless of the intention and the motivation of the preacher. It's Easter Sunday, and my preparation for this morning allows me to celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen. All that could be fulfilled in Christ, all the promises that we cling to, the substance and the conviction of our faith itself depends on the resurrection. This all holds up because he's risen. So we begin Hebrews chapter 12, reflecting on where we've come. Hebrews 11, we unpacked several of the patriarchs and other notable faith figures that this writer intends to give us for the purposes of building this case for faith. This writer's message to this small group of scared, discouraged, fatigued Jewish Christians simply not to lose faith. This audience had all kinds of reasons to begin to doubt, become fatigued, to step away from that first profession of faith that they made public. They've been experiencing some trials and tribulations and hardships. But this writer has gone to great lengths to give them a reason to persevere, to continue on with hope to express faith. His tone is pastoral as he encourages these believers with care. And this resonates with us because in the midst of our discouragements, in the midst of our trials, we would hope that we're met with the Scriptures or we're met with the messenger from God and we're met with the voice of the Lord himself with a sense of care. He causes us to gather near and hear what he has to say and encourage us in a hope that will not fade or fail. We start off chapter 12 with the reality that these saints are not alone. They are not alone. He starts with the cloud of witnesses. This cloud of witnesses that we've just covered, this cloud of witnesses that we walk through. And he gives these examples to let this group of Christians know that they are not alone. Satan works best in, some would say, his boldest in times of isolation. 
when we have disconnected ourselves from community or we've disconnected ourselves from this reality that we share in something together, that we are in a number, we are in a cloud. But this writer emphasizes here first and foremost in this chapter that we are never alone. What these witnesses suffered and what they were blessed with We also share in that. The cloud of witnesses imagery, if you just think of the clouds in the sky, you think of this gathering of people, this crowd, this multitude of people who are professing the truth of our faith, who are proclaiming the lived reality of our faith. You could picture them telling us, hold on, persevere, stay strong. It's all worth it. That picture, that image that we have as we look at past figures, we can look around this room and see the very same promise, full and complete, in front of us. He continues pastorally again, with great care, he says, let us lay aside the weight, the sin that clings so closely, and let us run. This language is fitting for a sense of training and preparation, acknowledging the things that hinder us. We are sinners, and we do assign ourselves unnecessary burdens. These burdens that we take on, whether we're thinking too much about the reality that we endure here, this present life, when we put too much stock in the temporal things, the things that will fade, the things that will not last, a lot of times that lays a burden, a weight on us as we wonder how we are to to maintain a sense of positivity or maintain a sense of endurance and perspective as we look at all the temporary circumstances in our lives. Maybe we're thinking about our jobs. Maybe we're thinking about the place we'd like to live. Maybe we're thinking about the ways that our kids challenge us. Maybe we're thinking about relationships we'd like to pursue. We don't know if our friendships will last. Temporary circumstances often seem to burden us without an eternal perspective. The sin that clings closely. Again, we're all sinners. There's not one of us in here that can step outside of this context and say, well, he's not talking about me. We're all sinners, but this text makes a very specific indication about sin. The type of sin that clings closely. Maybe we all have good days where we we are able to turn from aspects of our sin. Maybe you have good days where we are able to run straight to the Word of God or find ourselves on our knees or call up that accountability partner and say, help me right now, I'm struggling. Maybe we have those good outcomes, but this is referring to that sin seems like you cannot shake. That sin that seems like you keep hitting the wall over and over and over again. That form of discouragement that almost leaves you hopeless. It 
as he makes these exhortations, as this writer makes these exhortations. What's so encouraging about this is how he doesn't separate himself from his audience. How he knows his own tendencies as he encourages others. Let us lay aside the weight. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us or clings to us closely. Let us together. It's really interesting how we may view the model of the the modern church in America where I'm standing in front of you on an elevated platform behind this impressive thing. But in the reality, I share with you everything that is being proclaimed and exhorted to this audience. I could theoretically sit in the, the audience with you, sit next to you in a seat and share in that which is which is being proclaimed. I need this. Let us lay these things aside. What is his encouragement? Laying them aside. Turning from the sin that clings to us so closely. Run. Run with endurance. This picture of running is not just running as if there's this trudging. He's already laid the groundwork for laying aside the weights. He's acknowledged the weight of our own consideration, heavy consideration of temporal things. Laying that aside, already consider the weight of us allowing sin to cling to us so closely. Lay that aside. And as you experience this sort of weightlessness, begin to run. Now, don't run foolishly. Just lose your wind, but run with endurance to persevere weightlessly. So the writer acknowledges our tendencies, joins in with them, And then he points to Jesus. He tells them to fix their eyes on Jesus, the one whom this entire faith case case rests. Fix your eyes on Christ, the object of our faith. Recounting the cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, the crescendo comes here, right here at 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're given the prize. This is the prize who we pursue. What I love about Hebrews, this entire book, I really love about Hebrews, and I hope it hasn't gone understated here as we spent so much time, is that this entire book talks to us explicitly about Jesus. This entire book has explicitly given us reasons to trust in, to rely on, to lean on, to depend on, to run to Jesus. And we've been talking about Jesus explicitly for a long time. I use the language, this crescendo coming out of Hebrews 11, but this isn't the first crescendo, as it were. There's been other places where we have 
continued the climax to this unveiled view of his glory. And to be quite honest with you, it started in chapter 1. Chapter 1 told us that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Chapter 2 tells us that he is the captain, the pioneer of our salvation. Chapter 3 tells us that he is greater than Moses, that he is worthy of more glory. Chapter 4 tells us that he is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Not just the high priest who passed through the curtain and hoped that he came out, but he's passed through the heavens. Chapter 5 tells us that he is the eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. The only thing significant about Melchizedek is that he was after an eternal order. Jesus is the eternal priest. Chapter 6 tells us that he is the promise keeper, the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Chapter 7 says that he is now greater than Melchizedek. He's not just this myth or legend who we don't have a whole lot of information about, this shadowy figure that we can only look to a couple of verses to understand. No, he is revealed as greater than Melchizedek. He's accounted for in history, and we can view the reason we should worship him. Chapter 8, he is the guarantor of a better covenant, a minister in holy places, not on earth. Chapter 9 tells us that he is the perfect blood sacrifice. A sacrifice that was only offered one time for all of our sins. Chapter 10, he sobers us to remind us that he is the righteous judge. Perfect in his justice to judge his people. And the chapter 11 has given us these great faith testimonies that are ultimately pointing to the latest unveiling of Christ's glory. These names that we have visited through, from chapter 1 all the way till now, we are now at a new way to proclaim his unveiled glory. The author, the pioneer, the founder, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. The one whom which all of our faith should rest is Christ. This is his glory. If there are ever any questions as to why we should hold on or why we should persevere or why we should celebrate, why we should have any measure of hope, it is because of Christ, the one who has originated the entire glorious concept of putting total trust in him, the entire concept of a grace that we did not earn. So what does the author of our faith do? If we haven't already been given enough information for reasons to praise him, I, I love the psalmist that just, at, just for a long, you can go back and look this up. There's this long stretch where the psalmist just keeps saying, oh, that men would praise him. He's given us so many reasons to do. But so what does the author of our faith do? Continue in verse 2. 
He endures the cross, disregarding its shame. We visited this for a little while on Friday as we were reflecting on the significance of the crucifixion. Our Savior endures the cross, disregarding its shame. The sentence of death by cross was not just a punitive sentence just to execute some level of justice against an evildoer. It was a picture of shame. There's a way to penalize someone for a certain crime, but the cross was specifically sentenced to an individual so that there would be this open display of shame. The criminal is punished, showing every onlooker the pitiful, cursed outcome of any lawbreaker. That's what the cross is. It's more than just mutilation. It's more than just, oh, the horror and the story. It is a picture of shame to where onlookers would have to look at Jesus and struggle to understand how this person could even be the king of the Jews. It was a measurement of mocking to call him that. You think of not just the onlookers, the audience who saw Jesus on the cross in his shame, nakedness, weakest, his weakest moment. Maybe you can even think of what the heavenly beings thought of that moment. Not having the access to perfect and total sovereign knowledge of the completion of God's plan. What was the view of this moment where the Son of God laid bare on a cross? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8 says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of a man imagined what God has prepared for those who loved him. So despite anything anyone ever thought about the shame and the embarrassment and the pitiful nature of our Savior on the cross, there was a sovereign plan being executed at that moment that no eye had ever seen, no ear had heard. It had not entered into the heart of man, the preparation, what God had planned for those who had loved for him. In view of the cross, he endures, disregards the shame, he despises its shame. In fact, he puts the shamers to shame. The cross puts shamers to shame. It makes mockers look like fools. We see this very clearly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 3, 13 through 15. 
It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. So this display of shame and and condemnation and and pity was was looked upon as people, how could this happen? We thought this was our Messiah, but what was really happening is that God was making a very bold statement that what I have designed, what you could not have comprehended, is something that is more powerful than you could ever imagine. That this love shines brightly so that everyone in the heavens and beneath will know that Jesus is Lord. He endures the cross, disregards the shame. And what says, what's, what's next here? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is risen. We don't just stop there and say, oh, the cross. But the proclamation that the author and perfecter of our faith wants to make is that this is a living reality. He is seated at the right hand of God. So the resurrection is not about Jesus, not simply about Jesus walking around showing everybody that he's alive on earth making this show of the miracle and, and, and making something, giving something for everybody to talk about on earth. Wow, that was kind of crazy. Remember the guy who died and now he's walking around living among us? Just a short period of time, he interacts with people purposefully to give them a hope and encouragement to carry on a message that will save to the utmost. And where he eventually goes, where he makes his place and seats himself for all time, is the right hand of the throne of God. His resurrection is not just something that we cherish in because he shook hands with people on earth and he allowed people to touch his body, but the fact that he ascended to the highest place to make intercession for our sins. He is risen is such a deep truth because we we talk about a present Savior. We serve an I am Christ. This reality has not left us. His promises are just now, just as alive now as they were at the time of this writing. It's interesting to rewind back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Visit the literal meaning of of that verse. Defining faith as being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of things we do not see. Behold the glory of Christ, believing the testimony of the witnesses. This gives us that confidence of what we do not yet see the promises being fulfilled in totality. 
where we put away the perishable and we put on the imperishable. We put on forever and we leave behind the temporary. That is the full extent of our joy, our celebration. Faith is the confidence that we have a sure salvation. We have a resurrection hope that we will see Jesus as he is. Now, maybe you've been listening and and thought, okay, well, you missed a big, big part here. I want to go back and make sure that, that we cover such a beautiful reality about all of this truth. What do we possibly miss here? We miss joy. Joy. We can't miss this often understated point that there is joy gushing out of this text. He accomplishes all of this in light of joy. Now, we can pour over our sin and our depravity and our poverty and our tendencies to fail. You know, oftentimes the church is this place of lament where we're just constantly visiting the reality of our sin and our failings and our fallenness. And that's right and good to some extent. We have no hope without Christ. The crucifixion was ugly and gory for a reason. But we cannot be people who disregard joy. We should also be filled with joy. Jesus shows us what true endurance looks like. He endures the cross. He disregards, despises its shame in light of joy. The joy of Jesus. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. What does the joy of Jesus look like? He endures in light of joy. So the joy of Jesus is rooted in the confidence of his victory. The joy of Jesus is expressed in the exaltation he would, be, he would receive from his Father. The joy of Jesus is complete in that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. And this joy is ours. This joy is ours. The same joy that Jesus has is the joy that we share in. This joy that it is finished. That statement is that statement is not just a solemn statement. That statement is a statement of victory, of completion. It is the joy that was set before him. His victory is our victory. His exaltation is our glory. He has won our salvation. The joy that we receive when we fix our eyes on Jesus is the encouragement to endure. It is the motivation to persevere. It is the response of praise because we know that we don't have to take the weight. We don't have to to carry the sin. We can look to that which has already been accomplished 
our Savior, our Lord, our mediator, our priest is sitting on the right hand of the throne of God with all authority and power in his hands. And he beckons us to come and we respond to him and say, you come. We can't wait to be with you. His victory, our victory. That's the joy we receive when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And ask, is that an encouragement that you hear? Is that a tendency of ours to lay aside our weights, to turn our back on our clingy sins? And to fix our eyes on Jesus taking part in his joy. Is that a reasonable response for the Christian? Or is there maybe this immediate inclination says, well, you know, life can get pretty hard. I don't know if that is realistic. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, not only, not only is it realistic, it is a command. <laughs> not laying an extra burden on you. All I'm saying is fix your eyes on the author. Fix your eyes on the finisher. The more we pay attention to what he has accomplished, the joy springs forth. We realize it's not our job. We realize it's not our burden. We realize it's not us who is the hero. It is him who has already done it. It is finished. He is risen. He, seats to, he sits on the throne to advocate for us, to mediate for us, to beckon us closer. Say, you are mine and I am yours forever. The joy of the Lord is our strength, as Nehemiah says. That's how we endure. The joy is on the throne. I love it how the prophets say it, even as much as I love the New Testament saying it. Let's just listen to a couple of words from Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 19 says, The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35.10 says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sadness and sighing. I've had a couple of good sighs this week. I've had some really hard sighs throughout my life, but those things flee away and gladness and joy washes over us. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maybe, may we be acquainted with resurrection hope. These are promises that live. This is a reality that perseveres with us now. 
This text has been preserved for the edification of our ears, our hearts, our minds. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, receiving resurrection hope, resurrection faith, resurrection joy. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. We thank you for this joy that you have so richly given to us, so richly provided for us. And we can just look and see what you have done and respond the fullness of joy, knowing that what you've accomplished is enough. The story does not end with the cross, but the fact that you are risen allows us to reflect on what it means to pass from death to life as we share in your promise. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to remind us to fix our eyes on you in every expression of faith, every expression of perseverance, that we lay aside the weights, we put away the sin that entangles us and clings to us closely, and we look to Jesus. We trust you. We love you. We hope in you for all time. In Jesus' name, amen.